everyone, and welcome to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Rainey Rosemont, and I'm a dairy educator based in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Pete Schaefer with Maryland Virginia Milk Co-op. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on board. So before we get started, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role and background with Maryland, Virginia. I can. I'll, uh, I'll give you a little bit of my background. Uh, maybe, maybe not typical dairy, uh, but definitely all dairy background. Um, when I was real young, of course, I did what everybody does, you know, mow lawns, wash cars, deliver newspapers, whatever. But I started milking cows at my uncle's farm in Albany Township in Kempton, up in northern Berks County when I was 12. Uh, he had 115 milking cows at the time, which was a fairly large herd at that time, and 339 tillable acres. I, I milked there from the time I was 12 until I was 24, uh, part-time and full-time. But a lot happened between those 12 years. I, uh, I went to college at Penn State, and my first two years were at Burke's campus, and I worked at Dietrich's Milk Products. So I was there, depending on my school schedule, I was there from 4 till 8, 4 till 10, or 4 till midnight during school, school time, and then during break time, I usually worked midnight to 8 a.m. shift. So I got to know all the machines. I got to know all the inner workings, what was going on at the milk plant, which was very helpful in my career moving forward. After I graduated, went back to the farm full time for several years. And then I got a position with Pennsylvania Farm Bureau in nine counties as a regional director in southwestern Pennsylvania, which was Bradford, or no, Bedford, Blair, Cambria, Somerset, Fayette, Westmoreland, Indiana, Washington, and Green. So it was the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. And there, of course, you know, I worked with Christmas tree growers and mink producers and pig farmers and grain producers and dairy. But I spent, I, I ended up spending more and more time, I gravitated towards the dairy, of course, because that was my interest. So at some point I decided, I think dairy's the way I want to go. And I applied for a position at Hershey Chocolate USA. And I was a manager of fluid milk procurement there from 1990 till 1994. And that was also a really good experience. That's kind of where I, I cut my eye teeth. Um, that's where I learned a lot about the industry. At at uh, some point, they decided that they were going to release their independent producers. And we were all, I call it, traded to Land Lakes. And the new position I took at Land Lakes was called Area Procurement Supervisor. And then maybe seven or eight years later, I was approached by Maryland, Virginia, and asked to come across and help them establish themselves in Eastern Pennsylvania. And I'm working on my 19th year at Maryland, Virginia right now. The position that I have now is called manager of member relations. And I'm involved in milk quality, in hauling, in solicitation, in construction, new construction, remodel construction, whatever, troubleshooting, communications to the members, 
of course, the regulatory portion. I do all the uh, the uh, inspections on the farms, training and hiring of new personnel and member pay programs. I mean, I'm involved, heavily involved in all those things that are going on. And I manage New Jersey, most of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York. That's the territory that I'm covering today. So that's that's my work history and that's what I'm doing today for Maryland, Virginia. That is quite the territory to manage. So you have a lot of roles and you wear a lot of hats. For this particular podcast, we're going to focus in on your work as a milk inspector. So when you're inspecting farms, what type of data do you usually collect on the farm? Everything we do on the farm is based upon data. It's based upon numbers. And an example that I could give you, which is obvious, um, is, is milk quality. And I'll get to that, but let me let me branch off here a little bit. I, I gave this a little bit of thought after you sent me the uh, the questions, which I appreciated. Um, we've got internally, we have customers, internal customers. Our producers own four fluid milk plants and two ingredients plants. So we need to, of course, keep up our milk quality to service those facilities. We also have third party sales. Our third-party customers, you would be fairly familiar with uh, Turkey Hill, Wawa, Rudders, um, you know, Clover Farms, places like that. <clears throat> so we're delivering milk there. We're balancing their supply. And, and typically what will happen is one of our customers will come to us and say, hey, you know, we're going to change our products or we're going to start a new line. We're going to do something different. Here's what we need. And the first thing we do is, you know, we look at what does our milk budget tell us? Because we have to have the milk available. If we don't, we have to go solicit new milk so that we can provide the milk that they need. So the first spreadsheet that we look at is a really complicated, humongous spreadsheet that we call our milk budget. And then if we need to go solicit new milk, we have a very specific type of farm that we're looking for. We call it Maryland, Virginia style farm or Mayola style. Mayola is our, our brand that we're pushing. And it starts with roadside appearance, very important. And then, of course, milk quality and regulatory compliance. Then we have to look at other producer programs, milk quality. We'll take a deeper dive into milk quality. I want to look at their data on PI counts. I want to check their history and data on somatic cell, make sure they don't have any antibiotic history <clears throat> of rejected loads, and check out, and this is one you don't necessarily always think about, but added border, cryoscope. So those would be real important, again, data points that we're looking at <clears throat> and we're scrutinizing for all of our member solicitations on new member milk. And then we have to work with those new members that we're bringing on board to service our new customers with our spring over fall based excess program. They have to understand it so they can comply with it. And how our program works, it's not a quota system, which is a month by month, 12 month year round program. Ours is 92 days in the fall and it's 
The base building period is August, September, and October. That's 92 days. So we take all the milk that they produce in those 92 days. We add 10% to it because we allow them to go 10% over that in March, April, and May. So said another way, our producers can make as much milk as they want in June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, and February. The only months that we limit them on is March, April, and May. Again, 92 days. So, so we explain that to them and we want them to comply to that so that we don't have too many more loads in the spring than we do in the fall. And then of course, critical is hauling. Can we get that milk hauled? So, you know, those would be, those would be some things that, you know, you wouldn't think that it's so data involved, but when we bring on a new customer or an existing customer wants to increase the amount of sales that they have, we have to go to that mass balancing sheet, that huge spreadsheet, figure out where's the new customer, where do we need to deliver the milk, do we need to solicit new farms? If we do, how much milk are we looking for? And then go get the right type of milk in the right location, and can we get it hauled? So that would be that would be an example. Um, of how we would use data out on the farms in a customer situation. So I'm going to throw a question that wasn't on the script at you. That's fine. You, you mentioned it. Can you dive into what kind of points you're looking at when you're looking at roadside appearance and, and what that means for farms? Yes, that's pretty simple to answer. <clears throat> um, our society is is very um, they they've got in their mind a picture of what a family farm looks like, and it's two silos, and it's a stable, and it's a milk house, and it's a nice house, and groomed gardens, and mowed lawns, and. So, I mean, you know, are all our farms going to look like that? No, but what it cannot look like is a you pull it junkyard. Okay. Um, it needs to be, it needs to be what, what we call surroundings neat and clean because we don't want harborages for, for flies, for insects, for rodents. We don't, that's not what we're looking for. We constantly have to remind our producers that they are producing food for human beings yeah okay so given this and and you talked about customer data just now but with either customer data or on-farm data how would you use that to help your producers improve um yeah that that would lead me right into again something that's probably not as obvious um, but, um, you know, new, new construction, let's just say new, either, either an upgrade to an existing facility or a greenfield facility. First thing we have to do is interview the producer and figure out, okay, how many cows do you want to milk? Where do you want to be five years from today, 10 years from today, next generation. And we'll sit down and we'll do some planning that way. Once we, once we come to terms with how many animals they want to milk, 
and how they want to grow, then we'll get down into, okay, what's your preference on facility? And it's amazing. Um, you know, here's how I would say this. If I was in the, if I was in the chicken business or the pig business, the hog business, I would go to Bell and Evans or whoever, and they would give me a blueprint for what my buildings were going to look like because they all look the same. They have a standard in the dairy industry. We have nothing like that. Everything on the dairy farm is regulated from the concrete floors to the lighting in the stable to the location and structure of the water supply. I mean, and everything in between. However, the dairy industry, unlike chickens or hogs, does not mandate that all facilities look alike. And you know this. When you drive down the road and you see dairy farms, every one of them practically is different. Therefore, everything within that facility it is negotiated. It's regulated, but it's also negotiated. So if you think of it this way, um, you know, a, a robotic automatic milking system is very different from a carousel parlor, which is very different from a double eight rapid exit, which is very different from a flat milking bar, which is very different from a step up parlor or an Amish stable with a Sputnik, a dumping station or a pumping station in it. So, so each one of those different types of facilities is regulated a little differently based upon the equipment that they're installing and how they're doing it. So we, we figure out how many cows they want. Then we look at what type of facility they want. Then I come back and I go to the pasteurized milk ordinance, which is the book of rules and regulations that we go by. And I, I set up the guidelines for what that facility is, is supposed to look like at the end of the day. And then I do a blueprint and I personally, we as Maryland, Virginia, we really only get involved with the milk house, the utility room, the office, and potentially um, a toilet room. We generally don't get as heavily involved in the stable or the freestall, the housing facilities, not so much. We touch on that, but we don't get too heavily involved. I, I mean, the extension service has folks that have a lot more expertise than we do. However, we do have the expertise in the utility room milk house areas. So we stick to that. And then we provide those. We provide one for the electrician. We provide one for the plumber. We provide one for the farmer, the excavator. And then we attend those construction meetings. And again, you know, everything you do is based around data that you're collecting so that you don't make that mistake. I mean, a floor has to be sloped between two and three degrees towards the drain. You don't want it sloped towards the outside because standing water is not legal. So everything is based upon the data that you collect from those interviews that you have with that dairy farmer. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, it's a once in a lifetime, once in a generation opportunity. So you cannot make a mistake. Mm -hmm. and and we try to limit those things i mean everyone you speak to who has gone through either a greenfield or an upgrade will tell you i kind of wish i would have done this or this or this but we try to minimize those things we and and, and you do that through gathering data yeah yeah so 
given given that and and I'm going to pivot us a little bit to talk about milk quality and and kind of data involved with that but I do want to ask a question first about some important regulations and and how those facilities are are designed to look specifically with um you know how would you advise farmers on building things regarding like the milk house and where antibiotics go and, and stuff like that. You mean construction wise? Yeah. So or is that not something I'll focus on. Oh, no, no, no. Definitely focus on that building materials and all that super important. Even the location of the milk house, um, depending on, I'm going to say this, the prevailing winds. I mean, I, I, I try not to put the milk house on the Northwest side of the, the facility because it's going to catch all that cold wind and that's just going to make it more of a challenge to either insulate the facility properly because during the winter okay now we didn't have winter this past year but normally we'll have some cold cold days hot water is critical when it comes to cleaning your system which is a direct effect on what happens with your bacteria counts so the location of the milk house is critical we used to do all block we don't do that anymore block is cold it's hard to work with you know we're using stick construction two by six and a lot of a lot of r factor insulation inside we're using a material called truss core for walls and ceiling or we use an ag tough which is a plastic corrugated looking material so it's easily cleanable and it should last a lifetime uh, we went through a period when I first started, you know, 30 plus years ago, inspecting farms, everyone painted or had had uh, tile. Well, the tile faces popped off when it got cold and you had to paint every other year. And that was kind of accepted, but it was not handy. And then someone invented glassboard, which was kind of a plastic type material, but glassboard wicks water. And of course, the milk house is always wet, so that didn't last too long either. Uh, this new material, Trust Core and AgTuff, seems to be the solution. And with all new or remodeled milk houses, we're going with Trust Core and AgTuff. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair question. I mean, again, when I put together that. When I put together that blueprint, I get down to detail in where the location of all the drains are. We don't put any water on the floor anymore unless the farmer takes the nozzle and sprays the floor. Mm -hmm. No other water hits the floor. We're using stainless steel in the pans underneath the bulk tank washer. And we're, we are plumbing everything solid into drains that must be trapped. Um, the lighting is all accounted for. There's, a, you know, a porthole type bulk tank requires a spotlight, it requires a drop light. And then you need to be able to see one grain of salt on your hand. That's the regulation. I won't get into how many lumens that is, but I mean, that's, that's the degree of detail that we get into with PMO regulation in, in the milk house. So you did bring up bacteria counts, which is a pretty good segue for us. So with common issues like PI and, and somatic mm -hmm. cell count, what type of information would you pull to help a producer troubleshoot issues on their farm? 
So, so here's how I would say it. Um, first of all, if a farmer is not improving, he's fallen backwards. He's fallen behind. And that's one of the things that we stress at Maryland, Virginia, consistent improvement. The other thing that I would add to that, though, is if it ain't broken, don't fix it. So if, if our best management practices dictate, <clears throat> you know, 175 degree hot water, that the wash cycle runs for, you know, four minutes, that the CIP cycle, which is clean in place, that would be a pipeline or a parlor, that that, that system should finish and dump or divert, which is a term we would use at four minutes at, you know, 145 degrees. But this particular farm is using an older system and the hot water only gets up to 161 degrees and it's dumping at, uh, you know, 117 degrees, but his bacteria counts are running less than five. We're probably not gonna make any adjustments. We're going to say, continue to do what you're doing. Now, if he's struggling with, with either what I would call low elevated PI caps, which would be anything between like, you know, 15,000 to 65,000, that's a low elevated PI count. Um, we're going to start making some tweaks and I can take a deeper dive into how we do that. If they're running elevated PI caps, which is anything over 100 to 4 million, then we're going to do a, 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 a really in a hurry, deep dive. Okay. Um, we at Maryland, Virginia, we test every sample for butterfat protein, solids, a MUN and somatic cell. We try to get four PI counts every month and we drop the high one and average the other three. We try to get two standard plate counts or PLCs. Um, PIs are psychotrophic bacteria, which are cold-loving bacteria. PLC is a thermodura, which is heat-loving bacteria. So we get them coming or going, either way. <clears throat> and then we test monthly for growth inhibitors slash antibiotic. We do random tests for them. And then we also test any sample we're going to test for, for bacteria. We also test for antibiotic because the bacteria won't grow if it's a positive antibiotic. And, and just let me stress here, milk is the most highly regulated and highly tested food product in the world, in the United States. And there is no chance that there's antibiotic in your milk. We test it randomly with the producer samples. We also test every single load of milk that hits a milk plant before it's unloaded. So that's important for folks to know. <clears throat> So for this deep dive into troubleshooting, what what is yes? Okay, so at Maryland, Virginia, how we attack elevated counts, <clears throat> we break everything down into eight systems, and that seems to work really well for us. So you've got on each farm, and it now again, we talked about the different types of milking systems. It doesn't matter if you're an Amish guy milking by hand or if you've got a 74 stall carousel parlor. <clears throat> the basic premise here is identical, okay? You've got 
a vacuum system, you've got an air system, you've got a CIP slash clean in place system, you've got a manual cleaning system, a cooling system, a water system, a cow prep system, and a cow comfort system. And those are the eight systems that we look at. We talk to the farmer and we interview the farmer, we interview the hired help, we interview the herdsman to try to find out what's going on on the farm. We then inspect each one of those systems. We gather and interpret all the data that we pick up, okay? We identify the challenges, the trouble spots, the weaknesses, whatever that may be. And then we formulate a plan with the farmer to make the corrections over a series of weeks so that we can test the milk in between and in the end, identify the root cause that elevated the count. Think of it this way. Back when everybody was getting uh, COVID vaccines, folks were getting, their, their health providers were telling them, just get your flu shot and your COVID vaccine at the same time. Bad plan, right? Because if you have a reaction, which one caused it? You don't know. Okay, same thing here. If I identify a problem, with the vacuum system and two problems with the CIP system and one problem with the cow prep system and maybe three problems with cow comfort. If I change all of those seven or eight things at one time, yes, your PI count is going to respond and probably get better, but which one caused the problem? We don't know. So how we do it is over a series of weeks, we, we change things one or two things at a time so that we know at the end of the day where the problem arose from. So you kind of answered my next question, which was what type of data kind of triggers you to follow up with a producer if the producer isn't asking? And, and you discussed that with the elevated and partially elevated levels or slightly elevated levels. Low, low, low grade elevated, yeah. Low, okay. I didn't yeah. remember the exact term. Um, so there are a lot of issues that can affect somatic cell count and PI counts that are outside of the milking parlor and things like that. So when you have issues that can't be identified within your deep dive and say somatic cell is still creeping up or it's sustained high, do you call in outside help? Do you all have a way to walk the farm to see if there's some other potential causes? What, what would be the procedure there? We do. We bring in extra sets of eyes, and that might be a cleaning specialist, that might be a nutrition specialist, that might be an extension person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, some of these, some of these challenges are not easy to identify, and we're constantly learning. I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> If you'd have told me 20 years ago that I was going to know what strep uberus was and that it could show up as an elevated PI count, even though it's a bacteria that causes somatic cell problems, I'd have been like, I don't, I never heard of that before. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with what that is, you know, and, and, and those types of, those types of new challenges are popping up all the time. You know, there's new research being done. Um, and, and again, we have to stay as, as a field rep, we have to stay on top of those so that we can give our farmers the best information possible. Yeah. 
So do you have any takeaway messages that you'd like to share with our listeners? I do. Um, here's what I would say. The milk inspector on your farm should be and must be well-educated and a great resource. And if they aren't, you need to complain to your company and get somebody who is. Um, it's very important to work together as a team to tap into the knowledge that these folks possess out on the farms. You know, your field rep will literally see 30 to 40 milk houses every week. So there's a lot of experience there. And you compound that with how many years they've been working. Um, there's just a lot of wisdom going on. Now, if you have a newer field rep, that field rep is working with someone who's training them and they're, they're, th that wisdom is available to them. But the field reps are on the farms and of course they're required to enforce the rules of the pasteurized milk ordinance. But more importantly, to ensure a safe supply of milk slash food for the end use customers. They also are to make certain that our farmer owners meet the requirements and pass all U.S. public health inspections and FDA spot checks. In this way, we're partners with our farmer members out on the farms. We must work together in a spirit of cleanliness, continuous improvement, and food safety. That's what it's all about. Thank you, Pete, for talking with us today, and thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any further questions regarding this topic, you can email me at rfr49 at psu.edu. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday, where we will continue to dive into the topic of what we can do with our data. Have a great week, everyone.